This is usually called the Monday Mess Hall here on Views in the Crow's Nest, but today is not Monday. So we, in order to keep the initials of MMH in the title, are calling this the Midweek Mess Hall. This go-round. All right. Well, welcome back to another edition of the Mess Hall here on the Views from the Crow's Nest podcast by Fisher Jordan. Fisher Jordan is a New York-based strategy consulting thought leadership and outsourcing firm helping business leaders exchange complexity for clarity. Our approach is to provide decision makers in financial services and healthcare with clear strategies backed by analytics and enabled by tailored technology solutions. You can find out more about our approach to delivering client value at fisherjordan.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N.com. If you are a first-time listener to this podcast, let me give you the rundown in brief. This podcast is called Views from the Crow's Nest, but we do a couple of different types of episodes here on this podcast. This episode is part of what we usually call the Monday Mess Hall, but as I've already mentioned, this is the midweek mess hall. We should just call it the mess hall and just get rid of any sort of confusion. <laughs> In any case, the objective with the mess hall is to try to record, edit, and release the conversations in the same day. So anything you're hearing in the episode was ideally just recorded that morning. We have deviated from that from time to time, but for the most part, that's what we try to stick to. Our other episodes are more of the classic interview style with subject matter experts, but we wanted the conversations on the mess hall to be a little more off the cuff while also focusing more on current events, maybe some hot button topics that are even more specific than the trends that we discuss in our longer form episodes. And there's also a greater degree of maybe time sensitivity to the topics that we are covering on the mess hall. We do give ourselves a few hours to research the topics that we select ahead of time, Although expertise is welcome, the conversation is the point here on the mess hall, not necessarily finding solutions. My name is Nathan Johnson. You can think of me as the host, but I prefer to call myself the question asker. Joining me today will be, as always, or at least as usual, Boaz Salek, founding partner of Fisher Jordan, and Jivraj Karwa, as we take on three topics that we call the quick bite or the quick take, the big dig, and the closer. That's enough of all the setup. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome to the mess hall here on Views from the Crow's Nest. How are you guys doing? Great. How are you? I'm pretty good. We, we have a, a special version of this podcast because instead of three people on three different time zones, now we have three people on two different time zones because... If this was a movie, it would be Jivraj Karwa takes New York. You're you're here in the States with us, my friend. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Nathan. So we've got some interesting things to talk about today. Um, as lately, uh, we've been doing, once again, we have things broken up into three basic buckets here. We've got a quick bite that we're going to open up the discussion with. We've got kind of the the main topic or the the big dig that we're... We're going to spend the bulk of the episode talking about. And then, uh, again, a, another more conceptual topic to use as a closer. For our quick bite today, we're going to talk uh, a bit of a, a serious topic that has a, a connection to our, our HQ of New York. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the current state of public transit. Do we think that public transit is in trouble? 
Um, so I'm I'm basing that on the recent news of the the violence, unfortunately, on the New York subway. And I want us to talk briefly, uh, and you you guys can maybe bring a unique perspective as as locals or at least people on the ground in New York. Do we think that incidents like that will make people less likely to want to use public transit in the long term or just cause some short term uh, hesitance? I think it will be a short term hesitant, usually because a city like New York, you cannot live without using a public transport, no matter what happens. Few days people will fear and again will start traveling back. Unless like everyone starts getting a car and bike and then roads will be jammed again to a large extent again everyone will have to go to public transport. Yeah, the subway uh, violence is an interesting one, Nathan, because um it kind of harks back to the late eighties and early nineties where um those of us who are old enough recall that there was actually pretty high crime rate both on the subway and in New York New York City overall. If you read um uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, one, one of his books kind of points out the, the whole idea of the broken glass theory that uh, Rudolf Giuliani, I believe, together with the police chief at the time, put in place, which was they basically their idea was to start off small. So there were, you know, there was graffiti on the subway. So they started um, getting rid of the graffiti and enforcing their graffiti laws and, you know, um, getting rid of petty crimes first with the idea that if you tolerate the smaller stuff, it kind of sends a signal that even the bigger stuff will be tolerated. So if you know if you reverse that logic, then if you enforce the laws on the smaller stuff, then it'll also by definition resonate and and um, eliminate some of the some of the more violent crimes as well. So it's kind of interesting this is coming up now because that was kind of like a main focal point of Giuliani's overall kind of original idea of of reducing crime rate overall in new york city i feel like you just don't hear very often about incidents like this happening on public transportation in general as we're sitting here talking about this i'm kind of thinking back to like stagecoaches in the wild west where it was just a lot more fraught than it's not like this this is an indicator necessarily of a problem unique to public transportation i think uh, to your point boaz it's probably more indicative of uh, resources spread thin is a, probably a better way to put it uh, in terms of enforcing laws against smaller things. I don't think that this would be enough to make people fearful of uh, public transit as a whole. I think the benefits continue to outweigh uh, the negatives. But I wonder if there if there are lessons to be gleaned from this in terms of where do we kind of need to refocus you know, small scale stuff like you were talking about, Boaz, um, to kind of bring the the overall level of tolerance back down. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, it's fair to say that there are a lot of people who disagree with the broken glass theory as well. It's not like a universally accepted law uh, by any means, but it, it's certainly kind of one of the approaches that was used back in the in the early to mid '90s to clean up the city and the crime rates a little bit. But you know, crime in general—it's an interesting kind of um, window into into what's going on, you know, within a given community or a given society. Because it's it's one of those things that 
you can't really fudge, right? So, so when you have a society that's going through some turmoil and, you know, there are a lot of disagreements over a pretty wide range of social issues, a lot of times you can, you can voice a lot of that stuff over um, until it kind of evolves and, and starts impacting crime rates. And then crime isn't, it's kind of like inflation or, you know, things where a lot of people can be impacted very quickly. And that's kind of where the rubber hits the road, because then it's it's no longer a theoretical discussion about, you know, how big should the police force be or what kind of rights should they have vis-a-vis the people that they're stopping or, you know, what should the level of economic equality be? And so, like all those things can sound theoretical until they go far enough where it starts impacting the crime rate. And then it's no longer theoretical. And now, now it's like, can someone show up and actually fix this? Uh, I think maybe the reason you kind of brought up this question now is because it it kind of feels like it may be headed in that direction a little bit. Other thing I think of when New York subway crime rates is because it's underground. If you look at other cities across the world, for example, look at Mumbai. Mumbai has pretty good or pretty much similar public transportation system. It's local trains or Delhi has a metro trains. They also cover like entire city, but the point is these transit systems are on the ground. They are not below ground. That's another factor I can think of. The lack of visibility. Yeah, it's isolated, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, some of these other other modes that you see, I don't know. The, the next thing that I'm thinking of is like, what's the idea of a subway, but more visible is like a Greyhound bus. That would be an interesting yeah. thing to think about in terms of construction of new options. And kind of the irony of this, Nathan, is that to some degree, it's probably a result of, of what's going on economically. Uh, most times, I think crime and, and economics are very closely related. But when you look at public transportation in general and kind of the New York City subway system specifically, um, historically, it's actually been one of the great economic equalizers because it's it's given you know a huge number of people kind of equal access you know regardless of where they are in the economic food chain in terms of being able to get places quickly and cheaply um you know in new york city it's still probably the the mode of transportation of choice um in a lot of cases even if you have other options so threatening that system or or undermining it by making it unsafe actually (laughs) ironically, will harm a lot of the people that are probably aggrieved in the first place in a lot of cases. Well, let's move on to an unrelated topic. Uh, Sometimes the topics are related to one another, or at least tangentially, this one not so much. We're going to add our voice to uh, the chatter, the din (laughs) of what's going on between Elon Musk and Twitter. Um, We have talked a little bit on this podcast before about some of the strategic decisions made at Twitter. Uh, not that long ago, we were discussing ramifications of Jack Dorsey stepping down today. We're going to talk about the supposed hostile takeover that Elon Musk has been uh, angling for uh, at Twitter. Uh, some of the recent things that have been done uh, to curtail that. And let's discuss what would happen to a privatized Twitter uh, and the implications of massive communication channels being privately held. Not like that doesn't exist already, but uh, yeah, I just want to get into the weeds on this a little bit and see where we come out. 
I think purchasing Twitter, I think it comes from the move as to like, if you see every billionaire out there is trying to control at least one media house. Jeff Bezos, The Washington Post, Warren Buffett owns at least 70 regional daily newspapers. Uh, Indian billionaires also not far behind. Mukesh Ambani owns whole network 18 group. The Gautam Adani, he owns Quint Digital Media. The list is pretty big. I think the move that comes from like probably other billionaires also owning a media house and given like social media is more effective than a traditional media right now because it affects every single age, race, color, everyone. Twitter is everywhere. Facebook may be banned in places, but Twitter isn't banned everywhere. Right. So <clears throat> that's one aspect of it, I think, at least about why would anyone want to go after Twitter? Yeah. And, and Nathan, I, I guess uh, just, just to kind of echo a little bit, you know, I think the idea of big media companies um, being publicly traded companies is relatively new. You know, even going back to like the original newspaper magnates, you know, the William Randolph. Randolph Hearst of the world and and his kin, you know, in, in general, I think if you look back, the history of it has been that they have been privately controlled. And, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, as the case may be, um, these media outlets have been used to serve the purposes of their owners. So I, even if that is the direction that Twitter would go in under, under an Elon Musk, which I, I don't know if it will or won't, but if it is, it certainly wouldn't be that big of an outlier if you look at the history of, of media outlets. Yeah, that's well said. And also, as Jivraj noted, this is not a new thing. You Like Jivraj, you just gave us a list of media entities that are either majority owned or completely owned by, um, in some cases, like actual individuals, right? not just like a trust or a, or an investment group. Um, and we actually have, there's, uh, when was it? I think it was on Friday. This story has already kind of advanced that um, Twitter is enacting what they call poison pill rules, which basically allows uh, existing shareholders to purchase more um, shares at a discount to dilute uh, the, the shares of like individual investors as well. So I know that when I was proposing this topic to you guys, even since then, the topic has, has advanced a little bit more, but, um, getting back to what I was saying though, that the, the, there's some inconsistency on this that I find a little bit confusing, um, at least right now where why do we tolerate a Washington Post being owned by Jeff Bezos, for instance, but the notion of another entrepreneur um, owning a different outlet is unconscionable. And I think some of the discussion is around like what people fear Musk might do with it. And I think that you're also onto something, Jivraj, with the the aspect of a social media entity being different than like a newspaper right it's a, a little bit more egalitarian in terms of perspectives that are allowed on it potentially right yeah because i may not read a newspaper every day 
but as sure as I'll scroll the Twitter, Twitter feed every day or my Facebook feed every day, Instagram feed every day. Like, uh, and as you go from like the population that's being influenced, that's the young population. Nobody or like very few individuals actually read newspapers, but everyone has a social media account. That kind of influences uh, the general population. For to give an example, right now there is a big crisis going on in Sri Lanka. Some roots of this crisis go back to couple of years back, it's a pre-pandemic, and they go back to the fact that there were violence against uh, particular religions, and those violence, one of the primary cause for those violence was Facebook posts and facebook publicly apologized even for that so the reach of social media i feel is much much faster than uh, general uh, or the traditional media given that fact like other few things that elon musk said is twitter has a potential and i will unlock it if he makes it like a private company so i'm not sure there like multiple meanings can be taken out of that statement not sure which one to take or what would one take to if you could be like it would just help him grow his businesses that's one aspect of it other is like it would just help him increase the influence as is all the world he already is like he's the richest person in the world with like 275 billion dollars as net worth buying twitter would maybe increase the worth or maybe there's something else in his mind yeah and there's kind of like a general rule i like to apply to situations like this so if you look at the amount of fire um at least verbal fire and maybe even like legal fire elon musk has taken since he uh announced it's his tender offer it, it uh, to me at least it kind of seems disproportionate i, I mean you, you have people making acquisitions all the time twitter isn't the biggest company in the world like why is it that big of a deal and i kind of have this rule of thumb that, that if if you can't understand what something's about then it's probably about politics and in this case that that may well be the case why because you know first of all musk is a popular guy um you know he's taken on you know when he founded paypal he took on the banking industry with tesla he's taken on the automobile industry solar city he's taken on the energy industry so he's taken on these huge industries and in a lot of cases has prevailed and succeeded um and his pol politics are still relatively unclear for someone in his um his social and financial means so it it kind of you know it begs the question of you know is a lot of the reaction to this twitter offer uh related to just a fear of what what his political uh ambitions may be if he gains control of such a platform i'm inclined to agree um again like you said that and and like we've been mentioning like acquisitions happening all the time and then touching on what jivraj said that basically uh i think imp i think the takeaway from that is that there's something unique about social media platforms um, that when comparing them to traditional media outlets is it, maybe it's a bit of an apples and oranges comparison um, in terms of potential reach, et cetera. 
Um, so you have this this confluence of factors that I think make it a bigger deal. But I'm wondering if we would see a similar pushback if, I mean, for the sake of discussion, like a Warren Buffett wanted to buy Facebook and all of its subsidiaries. With Elon Musk, like, uh, if you go back to history a bit, so SpaceX, yes, he founded. PayPal, yes, he founded. Then SolarCity, yes, he founded. But one, his uh, probably the most successful venture, Tesla, actually, he didn't found it. Other two folks found it and he took it over with all the funding he poured and he named himself as a CEO. Right. So uh with the point is when he took that over, Tesla was pretty small and he took it to like the next level. Twitter is already like this huge entity. It may not be the largest company in the world, but it's still significantly big. Point is like he can build a social media platform of him of his own, probably at a cheaper price than that. Or he could go after other small social media platforms at cheaper price, and those folks would be willing to sell that to him easily. So why is what's the Twitter acquisition gonna do differently than any other thing? Meaning what, Josh? You, you think it's going to be successful under Musk? or What I'm trying to understand is, like, why Twitter? Why not anything else? Like, it's it's a big company, right? So to go after Twitter, he's going to have to spend, like, one-sixth of his, uh, or even more, of his, almost 15% of his worth is at $275 billion and even $43 billion acquisition. Right. Uh, if you look at the acquisitions of media companies by other billionaires, it's barely like less than one, two percent is spent to buy those companies. Right. So that's a huge number, 15 percent. So what's in the Twitter that he wants to unlock as to why only Twitter? Why go after Twitter as compared to like other social media platforms? Other smaller social media platforms, possibly. Well, I mean, he has said that Twitter is kind of the de facto global town hall of of today's times, right? Which um, I think it's hard to argue with that. I think to me that the moment that became pretty apparent was when Trump, both as a candidate and then later as a president, was using it as his his uh, communication platform of choice and. You know, I, I mean, I know th- there's this kind of o- overglorified notion of the leader of the free world, but still, as soon as you have a U.S. president using your um, social media platform as their communication platform of choice, it, it does, in effect, become something of a global town hall. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of hard to displace at that point, you know, unless some new technology or some something radically different comes around that that kind of knocks Twitter off that. But I think I think right now you could make an argument that it is kind of the the communication platform of choice for, for a lot of people kind of up and down the food chain. So so why isn't that, Javis, do you not think that's reason enough to want to control an asset like that? Well, that's a reason, but I'm not quite convinced it's reason to spend 15% of your net worth 
what I'm trying to understand is like the statement that Musk made that Twitter has a huge potential and I will help unlock it. Isn't like saying Twitter is town hall of the world. What's more there to come that Musk will unlock? What is he trying to imply that? What will he make of Twitter that was uh, was kind of implicating to like what does he see in Twitter to spend 15% of his net worth that he sees, okay, he's, this is the roadmap I see for Twitter. Yeah, I hear you. You're saying that for that amount of money, he could scoop something smaller up and build it up to whatever he wants, but there's potentially something unique about Twitter. I mean, the, the thing that occurs to me is just that the infrastructure is already built and you don't have to do as much work even though like financially it, it probably makes very little difference um if you're if you're prepared to put that much money forward um but i definitely hear what you're saying jivraj where for that price why not just kind of build your own uh social media platform with uh whatever you want to have in it um so yeah that's an interesting interesting question it might be interesting to check back in on this uh however long it takes for this to kind of reach its conclusion and, and kind of see where things shake out for our closer topic i want to talk about ai accelerated analytics in terms of assisting in identifying and halting disease progression um, as always we're linking any articles that inspired this discussion in uh, the description of whatever podcasting uh, platform you're listening to. Um, and I'll do the same for these. Uh, basic summary of this article is that some recent work has been done uh, with, again, AI-enabled analytics in terms of identifying and potentially halting in this case, a specific kind of heart disease. And we have written at least one article about the use cases for analytics in halting disease progression in the in the, the article that we wrote. It was more about uh, diabetics um, or diabetes, excuse me. I'm interested in this angle of analytics accelerated or enabled by artificial intelligence in these use cases do we see this sort of thing becoming like a mainstream approach in healthcare or maybe just applied periodically to specific conditions or cure syntheses ai in healthcare has always been there it's been used by insurance companies for so long uh the for for their use of course but for use of actual people whose data is used to build those models coming now so for example when i was studying in college my professor actually had a project he was working with one of the insurance company their data was actually able to predict when the range of like years you're going to die in like let's say you'll be dying between your 75 to 80 years of age something like that the insurance companies use that data to give you insurance. If my life cell predicts that I'm going to die next year, nobody's going to sell me a term insurance. That's saying that, okay, he's going to pay only like few dollars and going to get like hundreds of thousands of dollars in return. AI in healthcare has always been there. It's just the point that it's coming 
it's actually being used for people whose data are being used to develop those models now. Yeah, and and Nathan, you know, uh, when you look at health sciences in general, you know, the breakthroughs have always come, you know, even dating back to the earliest days of, you know, the, the research of Louis Pasteur about, you know, how to preserve uh, milk and f different food products or uh, the early experiments during World War One, when penicill penicillin, you know, the first antibiotics were developed. Um, you know, it's always there's always been kind of this idea of, of more information leading to better care, whether it's, you know, from a, um, you know, a, a drug perspective, a, a process perspective, a, a diagnostic perspective, et cetera. So, you know, fully expect that to continue. We're, we're seeing it, it push forward. So uh, I don't think there's a major health, you know, whether it's a healthcare provider or a health insurance company uh, who don't have major initiatives on this front, on this front. And we certainly expect that to continue. Yeah, I would agree. I feel like with all of the discussions that even just that we have had about the ever-growing applications of data analytics and the in insane amount of data that is generated by healthcare in particular, it makes no sense to, to not develop tools um, that can churn through healthcare data sets and, and make, make connections that uh, maybe humans miss. I'm really interested in the idea of AI ML applications that, um, you know, maybe we see them refined to detect some sort of anomaly that maybe leads to cancer uh, that you can then ward off like way in advance if, if it kind of has enough of a, of a data set to kind of make up a, a prediction about something based on, you know, number of occurrences where it's like these things had had this in common. I'm hopeful about uh, some of the, the potential things that can come about from that. I imagine it becoming almost like entire systems in hospital management that are, are running some sort of uh, machine learning logic that's that's kind of going in the background and and I don't know exactly how that would be developed further, but uh, I see it. I certainly can envision it becoming a, a much bigger part of things. Yeah, absolutely. And you can you can kind of almost look at every single part of the healthcare food chain, and and very like I think anyone off the street who, who has recently gone to a primary care doctor, recently had a hospital visit, really recently had trouble filling a prescription, what, whatever it is. Um, but I don't think there's a single person out there who can point out a few dozen like really interesting use cases for, for the use of data science. One interesting thing will be to see how, how this plays out in terms of where on the value chain we see the most impact. So um, will it be kind of on the higher end of the value chain? So th this article, for example, that we're talking about was about using AI to identify um, heart failure or even potential heart failure years in advance, right? So that's kind of a diagnostic application. Um, that's a relatively high value application versus something more logistical, like you know scheduling, uh, you know scheduling doctor appointments and getting your meds right and stuff like that. So it'll be pretty interesting to see kind of where on the value chain the the data science and information science has the most impact in the coming years. 
I would agree there. I mean, it's interesting field, and I feel we are just getting started in this. There's a lot more to come. Things, few things have developed in past, like, um, for example, the cancer detection. Nathan, you're talking about that use case has been like now getting pretty old, but we have moved way beyond that now. Beyond just like filling out your prescriptions and medications, we're moving towards like diagnostic cares, as was said, like detecting your condition of your heart or kidney 10 years down the line depending on what you eat today what's your lifestyle today how much you walk how much you uh, what activities you do what kind of drugs you take uh, what kind of food you eat and all that right uh, one interesting thing that would be like interesting thing to see would be where would it take you so let's say if I develop something that can predict your death and I can tell you, okay, you're going to die like in the next 10 years. What would be the psychological impact of that particular thing on person's brain? Or for example, let's say um, I just told you that, okay, depending on your lifestyle, uh, you have 20 more years to live because pretty much like I studied thousands of people of same characteristic. They smoke cigarette like one cigarette a day. Uh, they eat a lot of non-veg food. They uh, go to gym like twice a week. They go to run twice a week and we studied that pattern and that leads to like a lung cancer at the age of 50. You are 30 right now and after that they end up living like 5 to 10 years. So what would be the impact of that on person's uh, psychology or person's behavior? Like someone could be could start living life to his full that, okay, I just have 15 to 20 years more to live. And someone could be just like, okay, I don't have anything to do. It's just 20 years are left of my life, right? So it would be interesting to see someone developing that solution that gives out the data as to, okay, this is what's going to happen for me in the next 10 years. And you also wonder that if if these predictions can be made with a degree of certainty, if that then brings about particular lifestyle changes, uh, then you wonder if that then alters the the prediction, I suppose. It's kind of the... I'm uh, really intrigued by the projection possibility and like how it almost starts to become like time travel movie tropes where it's like if you prevent <laughs> prevent marty's ma or marty's grandma from like hitting his dad with the car and he doesn't meet his mom and all this kind of stuff uh like you you change certain things and then like the outcome uh potentially changes as well it was a back to the future reference by the way in case anybody's listening and doesn't know what i'm talking about but i saw uh, boaz nodding and like he knew what i was getting at so <laughs> it's pretty much the father grandfather paradox types i go back in past i kill my grandfather i don't born so pretty much like now i know 10 years now with i continue with this lifestyle 10 years down the line i'm gonna die so let's choose another timeline that's there that will make me choose and change my lifestyle stop eating like all the junk food eat only healthy like salad once a day and go gym five days a week could increase my life line and 
I'm choosing another another timeline now. So there are like the two tranches of timeline that that are gonna go parallel, and I have ability to choose the pretty interesting paradox. I think it's interesting topic, and we are here to see full of it. It's just we have just seen tip of iceberg. I think there's a lot to come in that space. Mm-hmm. As we all know, like the everyone's intrigued by the word AI or ML. But nobody knows what's the black box doing in there. Uh, or to some extent, we know what are the algorithms we use and all. But we don't know what's happening or how are we predicting those things or anything of that matter, right? So uh, we are just getting started on that uh, train, And there's a lot to come in that context. Well, guys, great to have you both on once again. Boaz Salak and Jivraj Kara here with me today. Um, looking forward to having you both on again uh, in the future. But as always, thank you for the discussion. It's always always a good time. Thanks, Nathan. It was nice. Thanks, Nathan. Good stuff. That's it for this episode of Views from the Crow's Nest. As with any other podcast, if you enjoyed what you heard here today, we would appreciate it if you left some sort of rating or review on your podcast app of choice, or you can share it with a friend or colleague if you think that they would enjoy the content that we are discussing here. My name is Nathan Johnson, and from all of us here at Fisher Jordan, thank you for listening, and we will see you from the Crow's Nest. Crow's Nest.